0: My 20s were a decade of trying to figure out what in the heck was going on. We were told something is happening on the streets, so get ready. Use your guns against the people. Whatever you do, as best as you know how to live into it, be full-hearted or just quit. Be full-hearted in quitting. Our lives are meant to make us feel very safe and very taken care of. And then what you end up feeling is you don't know yourself in unknown places.
1: So I'm going to jump right in with Dan Allender, who I saw last week. You never really know when you're going to see him. And he and I were catching up about what we're working on. I asked him, you know, what he's been doing for his pleasure reading and his free reading is like some of the gnarliest stuff he's reading.
0: Why is that not surprising?
1: Right. I kind of expected maybe he reads an occasional novel, which I know he does, but right now he's reading some heavy stuff on where the racial as a construct comes from. And as I pushed into that a little bit, he gives me this line and it's anytime the people of God refuse to address an issue of injustice, the world is going to fill the void and something is going to be lost and distorted
0: in that process. Yeah. I love that. It's a killer concept and, and way of putting it. Yeah. And Ties together for me
1: with another quote, which actually happens to be from Mark Twain, the eminently quotable. And it's very simple, but Mark Twain wrote, anytime you find yourself on the side of the majority, pause and reflect. And navigating a course between those two concepts that when the people of God refuse to address injustice, the world fills the void and something is lost. And when you're on the side of the majority, you do actually need to reflect we're going to talk about feminism today.
0: Yeah. I mean, every episode that we do gets a little bit of editing and tweaking, mostly, you know, if someone coughs or if you want to make yourself sound slightly more intelligent. When I say you, I mean me. This is, however, our second recording of this episode.
1: And part of the reason of that is, well, one, the first recording was kind of all over the place. There's a lot of concepts that we want to throw out there. There's a lot that needs to be clarified. There's a lot in the story of uh, the development of feminism through several waves into its contemporary iteration that needs a lot of parsing out.
0: Yeah, and we knew this was going to be a series even when we started the last recording, but we we found ourselves trying to Uh, protect and name really well and almost just have this disclaimer type posture, this almost, you know, apologetic type posture while also trying to bring all this information together. So, yeah. So, you know, don't skip this one, guys. But Sam and I did recognize that
1: as a couple dudes sitting in a room together talking about the history of feminism, there are like, definitely some criticisms are going to come there. But, What we didn't want to do was retract back inside like our own tight circle and just produce episodes that we know people like us will like and that are really, really geared, you know, for
0: young, outdoorsy Colorado fellas. And the truth is, as fathers of daughters, the issues of feminism and the history, both negative and positive, and their futures are very closely dear to our hearts. And so as we step back into this, I, I think the Dan quote was is a great was and is a great posture to step into it with, right? Whenever you choose not to engage an area as the kingdom of God, as someone who is bringing the kingdom of God with them, someone else will step into that void. And so just because it makes us uncomfortable or because I'm already nervous for the way that people will take this, I'd rather step into that than not. Yeah.
1: So this is going to be a series In the later parts of the series, we're going to invite some uh, women to reflect on the conversation and to push it some different directions. But section one, is just Sam and I, because we're actually not even going to get to feminism today. We're going to start with this other fascinating concept that has the potential to change your worldview in basically any arena. And what that concept is, is Hegemony? Hegemony? Yeah, I actually mispronounced it for a long time. Hegemony, but it's hegemony. It's a Greek word, and it comes from the word for leadership. But in order to understand, it's uh, theoretically, it's a form of governance. But to figure out where it comes from and what it is, we actually need to go back to ancient Greece.
0: This is my TARDIS noise, taking us back in time. Can you give me some battle noises? Uh ching 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 It's the end of the Peloponnesian War,
1: and we're here and it's you know four hundreds BC and there's this historian slash philosopher slash mercenary named Xenophon and he's like the most interesting person. He's not connected to xenophobia, is he? Etymologically, you know, they share a word in there, but it just means foreigner. Anyway, he's not. But the interesting thing about Xenophon is he, together with this other historian, are the ones to introduce the word hegemony for the first time. Because, you know, the Greek word was already there, hegemon, leader, but the articulation is a form of governance. Xenophon did that. And it's a little bit of a departure, but to understand why he articulated hegemony and the way that he did is super fascinating. So, Xenophon, he is from Athens, I mean, he's born into an Athenian state. And at the time of the end of the Peloponnesian War, there are two powers, basically, on the western side of the Aegean Sea. Actually, there's a few more. But the ones that we need that are important for our purposes are Athens and then a military state by the name of Sparta. And even though uh, Xenophon is, in fact, a member of the Athenian state, he's a big supporter of Sparta. And this is, this is where the story gets super interesting. Just get ready to have your mind that loves cool battle stories be totally blown. Are you ready? I'm super ready. So across the Aegean Sea, there's this massive kingdom by the name of Persia. And the Persian king is dying. And he has two sons. His older son, actually he has more, but his two oldest sons. Oldest son is Artaxerxes. And then his younger son is Cyrus the younger. And King dies. I think his name is Darius, but whatever it is, he's a moot point because he dies. And Artaxerxes gains the throne. So uh, Cyrus the younger wants to rule Persia, but in order to do that, in order to kind of depose his older brother, he needs an army. And so n- near the end of the Peloponnesian War which takes place between Athens and Sparta, Cyrus the Younger gives Persian support to this Spartan ruler, Lysander. And in exchange for that, after the Peloponnesian War is over, Artaxerxes, in this independent thing is over, you know, Eastern Persia, kind of in where Iraq is now, and he's just come to the throne. So Cyrus the Younger, under the guise of going to war with this lesser Persian ruler, gets this Greek army together. He gets 10,000 Greek mercenaries, and one of them happens to be Xenophon, goes with him. And so Cyrus the Younger marches deep into Persia. Like, this is ancient Mesopotamia. He's headed towards the Black Sea, like right in the middle, where the Middle East is now. And there's this battle. And it's at this place, Kunaxa, maybe Kunaza, depending on who you ask, where Cyrus the Younger confronts his older brother. And it's actually super interesting because right before the battle, Cyrus hasn't even told the Greeks that they're going to go to war with Artaxerxes because Persia is the biggest dog in the world right now. And they find out and the Greeks are like, no way, we're going to all go freaking die. But there's this Spartan ruler who addresses the Greeks and he convinces them to fight anyway, even though they're grossly outnumbered and, you know. Persia has, among other things at this time, this, this phenomenal cavalry, and Cyrus the Younger has nothing that can answer it. But what he does have is these elite Greek warriors who he deploys in this battle, and here's where things get super interesting. So Cyrus the Younger is killed in this battle. Artaxerxes wins. Uh, most of the army is demolished, but the Greek portion of the army stays almost entirely intact, Okay. And so they're kind of left there because they're heavy infantry, like they're kind of elite fighters and Artaxerxes, you know, retracts back within his own kingdom. And so you have 10,000 Greek soldiers who need to make it back all the way across. They need to make it to the Mediterranean first, and then they have to make it, you know, back up into Greece, but they are in freaking Iraq. Like they are in the middle of nowhere and they have to make it back to the coast. I mean, it's crazy right? This just, for me, I can't believe that there's not like a sweet film version of this that would start with like Cyrus the Younger being killed by a spear. And then the battle dissipates and you just have this massive army of Greek mercenaries in the middle of nowhere. And so there's all these little kingdoms around them, but no one wants to hire them as soldiers, but no one can actually destroy this army. And so they're kind of on their own and they're trying to get someone to, like, hire them and feed them as an army. And they're working their way up towards uh, the Black Sea. They're working their way north. And on their way, uh, they end up finally getting hired by this Spartan leader. And they become involved in this war against Persia, ironically. Like, the moral of the story is, like, if there's a massive army in the middle of your country, hire them. Or someone will hire them to fight you. But this is kind of what becomes interesting is Xenophon records the history of this war. And he, in the course of, you know, telling the end of the war between Athens and Sparta and telling, talking about the war with Persia and the death of Cyrus the Younger, he begins talking about this thing, a government called hegemony, and he backs it enormously. He goes, you know, a hegemony... Is whatever culture is militaristically or politically or economically ascendant, and you should just, they have a right to rule.
0: It is the ultimate might makes right. Okay, that's where my mind goes. Um, the guys with the swords get to call the shots, even in your worldview, essentially? Uh, well, eventually.
1: But I, what I wanna point out about Xenophon is he is, he's the ultimate mercenary. Not only does he go to war for money, but Which is the definition of a mercenary. <laughs> yeah. But there's this kind of famous story where Xenophon knows Socrates. And when Cyrus the Younger is soliciting troops to go to war, uh, Xenophon asks Socrates if he should go. And Socrates just goes, this question is beyond me. Go ask an oracle. And so Xenophon goes to an oracle, but he doesn't actually ask whether or not he should go he asks the oracle, which gods do I need to sacrifice to in order to be successful and to come back alive and rich?
0: I like those questions.
1: Well, it's crazy because you have this guy who, what he cares about at the end of the day is, you know, how do I come out on top and who do I need to be serving and who's going to be powerful enough that I'm going to come out on top?
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty
1: modern thinking. It's big time modern thinking and What it results in is that hegemony, as it's introduced into like Western political discourse, gets this positive spin. Because Xenophon definitely likes power. He wants to serve whatever gods are going to get him back alive. He doesn't care about the moral rightness of going to war, not with Cyrus. And he wants whatever nation has the strongest army to be honored as the leading nation in an area. So he writes about hegemony, the political dominance of a nation. And he gives it this spin of, yeah, this is, this is kind of an appropriate way to govern.
0: Okay, I think I'm tracking.
1: Right, so that's, that's the first part of hegemony. It's, it's political hegemony, and we still see it all over the place. And our world, it's actually referred to as a sphere of influence, but it still kind of comes down to who, can, who has the largest army, who ha- who's most politically ascendant, who has a very strong economy. And so, in you know, in the Western
0: Hemisphere, the United States, uh, over in Southeast Asia, you have a lot of competition. So, at this point, hegemony is essentially still might makes right. Exactly, it's might makes right, but there is this
1: enduring problem, which is how does the strong person, how does the strong nation win consent to govern? History is just rife with examples of nations who have a dominant military and who are politically ascendant impose control over a people and they are unable to govern because their right to do so is not recognized.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I mean I think of all of the kings of old and emperors and how they pretty quickly figured out they needed to be connected to the religion and they were appointed by the gods or by God singular. And it wasn't just they had the castle and they had the military. It was their divine right. Absolutely. And your point makes me
1: think of kind of the classic example of hegemony not working is the Roman Empire, you know, right around 70 AD and Nero is Caesar and he goes, I'm appointed by God to rule. And famously, the early Christians go, no, you're not we do not actually honor your right to govern. And, you know, you have the early martyrs because they're going, yeah, I mean, you might have the army, you can say you're appointed by God, but we don't buy in. And so, you know, kind of the early Christians become famously difficult to govern. They're viewed, they're viewed as a threat because they don't respond to the existing order. So we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years now. Actually, we're going to fast forward a couple thousand years because we have political hegemony, but then we have that, that contrast you just talked about of how does a ruler win consent? And that really gets developed actually in the 20th century by an Italian dude, Antonio Gramsci. And it's 1922. So we are after the First World War, and there's all the ramifications of that in Europe. And it's actually during the first world war, this kind of famous thing happens in Russia,
0: which is the Bolshevik Revolution. <laughs> you were waiting for me to tell you what it was and you would have been waiting for a while. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Well, it's actually it's a long series of revolutions in Russia that happen,
1: you know, between like rough kind of nineteen eighteen and
0: when I think of post World War One, pre-World War Two climate, it feels like chaos of ideas, chaos of governance, chaos, and, and kind of anything's fair game. So Gramsci is in an environment where new thoughts are available. and Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, he, and he's also, Gramsci is significantly, he's seeing kind of, you know, the first ideological revolution on a massive scale in several hundred years. He's seeing the Soviet revolutions in Russia. And actually, Near the end of those revolutions, he goes to Russia in 1922 to see how they're doing and kind of observe, like, how do the Bolsheviks work, and you know, what how what does this people's movement look like? But they send him back to Italy actually in 1923 because the kind of global communist movement goes. There's this threat, and it's emerging in Italy, and you need to go back and you need to lead the opposition.
0: Any guesses about what that threat was? Well, because this is our second time recording, I'm going to say, shoot,
1: fascism? Yeah, it's fascism. It's, Gramsci is kind of pitted against Benito Mussolini, but if we know anything about world history, it's that fascism wins pretty significantly.
0: <laughs> for a while there.
1: Yeah, so for about, you know, 20-ish years. 1925, two years after... Gramsci comes back to Italy, Mussolini and the fascist um, party take over in Italy. They establish a monarchy. The next year, Gramsci is put in prison and he actually stays in prison the next 20 years. They release him just before the end of World War II, but you know he's been denied uh, basic care for so long that he dies just after. Here's the thing though is, so while Gramsci is in prison, he writes this famous series of notebooks, thousands of pages of kind of It's like Pascal's Ponce. There are these unfinished thoughts on politics. And one of the things he observes is that there are two levels of governance. And he sees this in Russia. Because what he sees is the Bolsheviks uh, come to power. You know, they depose the last of the czars in—well, I guess they actually don't—they're not the ones who depose the last of the czars. First, there's the February Revolution and Tsar Nicholas— He's forced to abdicate. He's later killed. And then in October of the same year, uh, the Bolsheviks take over. And so you have, you have a political transformation where a new party comes into power. But what Gramsci observes firsthand is the, what is believed to be one of the costliest civil wars in, the world, in world history. Because after that, between 1918 and 1922, 9 million people die in Russia as a consequence of these ongoing civil wars between Soviet parties. And this is not even, this is before Stalin gets into power. Yeah, this is long before Stalin. This is kind of the reign of Lenin. And what Lenin kind of observes is like, okay, well, the proletariat have taken over and we want to give the land to the people and we want to give bread to the workers. But people aren't really buying in. What he sees the proletariat is having to do is to lead this kind of cultural transformation where. Actually, the peasantry and the working class in Russia wants to be communist.
0: So this is this the second layer thing. The first layer that Gramsci sees is power by force. Yes, and then the second is power of belief. Exactly,
1: what Gramsci articulates is there is underneath political hegemony there is cultural hegemony. It's it's you have the ruling ideology why is it he- hegemony and not just worldview? Well, it's hegemony because you build it on purpose. You know, hegemony is the effort by one group to control another. And so what Gramsci observes is that the ruling class always has to influence culture to make its authority seem necessary or appropriate.
0: The control piece feels crucial here.
1: It's, it's just enormous. And so, just, just two examples that really uh, help, help show cultural and political hegemony working together, but sometimes in tension. The first super fascinating one is capitalism. And, you know, economies, they're a great example because they're pretty easy to look at, but what you go is, okay, so from a political perspective, from an economic perspective, it's really nice to have as many people as possible participating in your kind of economy from the simple rationale that you have more people to sell to and you have more people who are potentially workers who have bought in to your system.
0: Right. I I think I understand, but keep going. Okay. Okay. So political, just let's take the first level first, political hegemony.
1: So look at global free trade agreements where nations remove tariffs from one another. They allow you know, goods and services to come back super freely between uh, their respective nations. And that's a, it's a classic form of, you know, a nation at the end of the day always supports its own interests. That's it's almost what the government of a nation is. Are you saying
0: do. there's no altruistic governance?
1: Well, outside of the kingdom of God. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, outside of the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of the God. <laughs> king, of, The garden of Outside the Outside of Jesus. So, you know, political hegemony, you have the negotiation of these free trade agreements where, in, in essence, multiple countries become kind of, you know, capitalist or economic allies formally of one country. But the really interesting thing is political hegemony, you, you don't necessarily get larger markets, your economy doesn't necessarily benefit unless you succeed in achieving cultural hegemony.
0: Like with the Bolsheviks and the
1: Communist Party. Exactly. So in this economic example, there's a really interesting thing about um, the way that actually worldview, the basic assumptions about human beings and you know the nature and purpose of man kind of result in particular forms of economy, particular forms of politics. So there's this famous thing. It's called the Protestant uplift. And, you know, we're pretty familiar with how it works because we talked about it a few days ago. Yeah, but when you first told it to me, it made me think of some kind of revival meeting or something like that. Yeah, which it happens to not be. The Protestant uplift is the observation that, you know, 16th century, early 1500s, famously Luther breaks with the Catholic church and a number of nations go
0: with him. Right. He's based in Germany. Exactly. And so Germany and neighboring states?
1: Yeah. and, And kind of allied princedoms go with. So Scandinavia and the nations that end up composing Scandinavia and Switzerland famously become Protestant. Here's where the ideology thing comes in is one of the major differences between uh, Catholic and Protestant theology at the time was the meaning of work. And so, up till that time, Catholic theology, speaking very broadly, had emphasized work as a consequence of the fall. It's a punishment. It is. It's toil. Exactly. It's the enduring curse of Adam. Right. Whereas Luther... A little bit, but really a fellow by the name of John Calvin says, no, no, no. Works are the necessary consequence of our salvation. We, we work hard because we're saved, which is, I will say, a little crazy. Like It's, it's putting the cart before the horse in many ways. But oh, it's the complete opposite idea. Yeah, it is. And Calvin takes it a step further, though, because there's the joke of, you know, when a Calvinist trips and falls down the stairs, they get up and say, thank God that's over with. I've never heard that joke before. <laughs> okay, well, predestination. Yeah. And so only the elect will be saved. Famously, Calvinism is tied in with like, the doctrine of predestination. And so you can't know who's actually going to go to heaven. You don't know who's rescued in Christ. This feels besides the point. No, we're getting there. Oh, okay. And so, but how? where does it become visible? Like
0: you can guess
1: who's saved. Right, because of this uplift, wealth, work thing. Exactly. You can tell are saved by who's working the hardest and by who's the most frugal.
0: So those little lazy guys around town are not only lazy, they're also going to hell?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's where this kind of becomes really tricky. But, you know, kind of famously, the father of modern sociology, to a certain extent, Max Weber, points out in the early 20th century, guys, can we just look at how certain kinds of expressions of Protestantism create an ideology that dovetails really, really nicely with capitalism, with hard work, thrift, saving investment. So, you know, if you look at modern economies, what are kind of the famous, powerful economies in Europe? Uh, socialism and capitalism. In conflict. But the nations that have the strongest economies are Germany. Oh, sure. Which became Protestant. Scandinavia. Everyone knows that. And Switzerland. Big time. And then, you know, the nations who have had to have their currencies backed by outside organizations and receive national bailouts. I feel
0: this like it's a train coming and I can't avoid it. Is it the Catholic nations? It's the Catholic nations. And
1: that's what the Protestant uplift is. It's an example of how cultural hegemony works. You have a change in worldview. What is work and how do we regard it? And once that change in worldview is there, you actually can have a change in the actual kind of economy of a place.
0: The outworkings of those nations. What scares me, however, is that hegemony is still tied to control. Like, it's not just worldview. It was to certain people's benefit that these ideas change. And it gets a little tricky here because I get squeamish when we start talking about like ideas of faith being affected by people making money. Oh, yeah. I mean, well. I know it's there. All kinds.
1: It just gets me going because kind of tyrants of every make and color have seen this and they have understood, wow, if you can affect a person's belief, it's going to affect their action. And the best way to affect their belief is to try to slip something into their religion. You know, it, yep. all, think of all the things that religion is great stuff for keeping common people quiet or religion is the, the opium of, of the, the masses. masses. Yep. It, yeah. And monarchs tend to see... What they're talking about is if you change a person's ideology, but what they, you can benefit a lot if you do it in clever ways. And it's done on purpose. And one of the ways to get at that is to go after, is to see if you can slip things into a person's theology. Right. Okay. So here's just another example that that shows uh, that this is done on purpose in order to, you know, solidify power within particular groups. And this—I mean, this could be its own podcast—and there, are, there are lots of scholars who talk about the different ways that this has happened. But the development of race as a concept is a very intentional hegemonic move. And you know, just one, Doctor—I
0: mean, I want you to continue, but I already know that were it not for conversations with you, I would be in the boat that I think a lot of people listening right now are going to be in, where you sort of go, race as a concept. I thought that like race is just race, like race is identifiable outside of just being a concept.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And that's kind of because we're, we're so far down the line of this worldview work being done of kind of the acts being to the root for uh, several hundred years at this point of articulating, telling you that what's visually identifiable at a person can actually tell you something about that person. And and here's just one story, really interesting. And by interesting, I mean kind of horrifying, but very intriguing. So, you know, one story, and this is from Dr. De Silva, scholar at, oh, oh, my, she writes about everything at UBC, super brilliant. And in one particular article which she talks about. It, she goes, "Okay, so here's one way of tracing." how the racial becomes a useful political concept. And it starts in the Enlightenment. And it starts with people looking around. The Enlightenment famously, you know, rationality, the scientific man, uh, the universal man, all these things in play of, can we take a rationalist worldview and look at anything? And famously, there's this dude, uh, Georges Cuvier, a French scientist, and you know, later part of the Enlightenment, he's the, he's the father of paleontology. He was kind of the first guy to look at fossils and say, hey, these are actually ancient animals. You know, I, I can't remember. There's a word for what they were called. I think it was organoplastic or something. But there was just the idea that before Georges Cuvier, they thought fossils were just these things that just kind of em- happened in the earth, uh, where the ground in certain places just took on the shape of a skull and Georges Cuvier goes, no, actually that's the skeleton of an ancient animal. And it's cool that he's the father of, uh, paleontology, but he also, unfortunately goes and looks and he goes, Hey, you know, where else we see developmental difference? Because if you're looking at fossils and you're going, wow, that looks like an ancient horse. Here's a less ancient horse. Here's the modern horse. Look at this thing develop into, you know, an English race horse. He's then looking around and Georges Cuvier goes, wow, look at all these different, look at the different cultural positions. I mean, here in Europe, we have the Enlightenment, but over there in the colonies, you know, those cultures are less developed, it looks like to him. And so what he tries to do is he tries to tie what is a kind of cultural accident to something that is empirically necessary. And so he goes and like, this is the scary dude who's the one to like run around measuring heads and be like, oh, okay, so, and and to come up with a reason for why there appeared to be cultures. And what he comes up with is, Georges Cuvier is one of the first guys to go, you know, there's three races. There's Caucasians, there's Mongoloids, and there's Ethiopians. And he, like, creates this big argument for why these distributed nations represent varieties of the development of human beings. And then he tries to show why differences that are visible, like bodily differences, actually uh, are indicative of those cultural differences. But the reason he does it is because you have, you know, we're entering the height of the transatlantic slave trade. And we're having our first kind of massive empires developing. And so Georges Cuvier, he's a very shrewd dude. And he goes, If we're going to keep this going, you know, explicitly or not, we're going to have to kind of go like, hey, we are the best nation and we're sharing our stuff with the lesser nations and with the lesser peoples. And so on purpose, this is a hegemonic theory of uh, kind that then if you buy in and you go, oh, okay. So there are different kinds of human beings. There There are qualitatively different kinds of human beings. Then all of a sudden, it's not a huge step to turn your back on slavery, to go like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Like, that's a different kind of person. Like,
0: So though he massively predated Twain, he would be one, that if you took that quote that you said earlier, if you find yourself in the majority, pause and reflect, that his reflection led him to justifying and propelling the direction that his majority was in.
1: Absolutely. So, and, you know, that that's just kind of, one narrative of, you know, where the racial comes from, but it is, it shows how powerful this is. If you affect ideology down the line, you have kind of these, these massive consequences in the culture where it seems, things just look appropriate. Like it looks like certain groups should have authority. It looks like certain kind of, you know, social arrangements are okay and oftentimes, they're really, really
0: not. Yeah, I remember I was at a session out at Seattle for the, the Allender Center, and people were, were putting some words to these concepts that I think people were not very familiar with, and they were identifying and naming that if you are unaware of some of your reactions to people on the street or to people that you interact with on a given day to try and become more aware of them. How are you interacting as a man or a woman? How are you interacting as a man or a woman of particular colored skin and how you identify that? And it was such a mind-blowing concept for some people to just begin to acknowledge that their behavior is racist, regardless of any ideas they've explicitly held internally, that these ideas of race and hegemony in regards to race are like totally pervasive into the culture and they hadn't been even aware of it. And if yes. that's the case, then there was another, there was a young woman who got up to talk and she had to name for some of these people for the first time what her posture is like intentionally as a woman, that she is able to see the society that she's operating in and the ways that it affects her uniquely. And I feel like, I mean, that's the point of where we're going with this, right? It started with Sparta. It started with Might Makes Right. It's then gone into communism versus fascism and the cultural subtext and control. And now it's gone into race. And then we take the next step. Exactly.
1: So where we're going, we need this tool in hand in order to kind of look at where feminism comes from and, you know, in each of its waves and and what it does, because, you know, Hegemony is tied in, it's totally tied in with the concept of authority. Who has the right to do what?
0: Right. And then it's also back to that concept of control. Absolutely. And
1: so, what we'll do in our next podcast is we'll look at the ways in which this functions, you know, through time and then the ways in which groups of people have, you know, banded together. Like Bell Hooks, great critic, kind of famously writes that, hey, you know, Feminism is not a movement that is women over men. It actually has nothing, very little to do with that. It is, uh, it's not an anti-male movement. Feminism is an anti-sexist movement. It's, it's, an, it's a movement that's against the treating certain people, women, in a lower position because they happen to be women. But we're going to get there next time. My, my final th- comment here in thinking about hegemony is uh, pretty basic. And because hegemony originates in worldview, you kind of need to begin with any part of your worldview that doesn't originate in Jesus is going to take you bad places. So for example, like ownership, if what you believe about ownership doesn't start with the concept of stewardship, of reigning in the place of Jesus, but something you don't fundamentally have possession over, like if you don't start there, you know, you end up being Ebenezer Scrooge. You get down the line and you go, no, this, this work has given this to me. This is mine, my own, my precious.
0: Totally. I think of all, almost all of the parables that Jesus told in regards to ownership were stewarding, was you know people taking care of their master's house or property or talons. And at a certain point, that shifts to ownership and to, to co-ownership, but certainly the parables he was telling now was, was stewardship, not miserly old Scrooge, like, this is, this is my house, this is my, my things. Absolutely. Or, you know, another classic one is,
1: where do our beliefs about authority come from? About, you know, what it means to have authority in a place, what it means to be a leader? Uh, because if they don't originate in like the vision of the invisible God is Jesus, and he has all right and authority, but there's the famous passage in Philippians 2, where it goes, though he was equal with God, he did not count his equality as something to be taken advantage of, sometimes translated grasped, but took on the nature of a slave being obedient, even unto death, even death on a cross. You have this just manifesto of his vision of authority uh, didn't look like doing everything he could to get the world to serve him or get his authority to get him as many advantages as possible. I mean, Jesus kind of refused to support systems that fed his flesh, but instead entered in with this redemptive vision
0: of how his authority would affect the earth. So to your point again, any worldviews that you might be holding that are not rooted in Jesus are probably worth a second look because they're probably not so great. Guys, thanks for dropping by and listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it today. If you want to keep tabs on us and what other projects we've got going on, the best way to do that is to follow us on social media. If
1: you are no longer on social media, like some of us, don't panic. You can still keep tabs on what we're up to. Just go to ansonsmagazine.com. Join our mailing list and we'll keep you in the know. And while you're there, be sure to read the magazine.